the best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi everyone, and welcome to this month's installment of Beer with BMSIS, the uh, podcast that features the research, ideas, and philosophies of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. I am joined here with Dr. Betul Kajar, who will be giving us a, a fascinating talk. Uh, but first off, I'm going to pass things to Dr. Sanjoy Sam, who will introduce us to a new tasty beverage. Thank you very much, Jacob. Good morning, afternoon, and evening to everybody that's listening. This month's beverage is actually a wine. I had to think a bit before choosing it because my uh, first idea was to present a, uh, a Turkish beer because that's where Betul is from. But the CO2 budget associated with it was a little bit beyond what I was comfortable with. So I decided to go local and the wine um, for this month is from the Hecker Pass Winery. It is located about 40 minutes drive south from where I live in the Bay Area of California. Uh, Hecker Pass is a family-owned winery, fourth-generation Italians from uh, Calabria, which is the toe of Italy, which is closest to Sicily. Uh, it's a very small estate has, uh, and is characterized by old vines, so 65-year-old vines. And the wine is matured in both redwood tanks, so giving it a California taste, as well as French oak barrels. So the wine I want to, to present today is called uh, Dolcetto Rosso, or Sweet Red. It is more of a fruity sweet wine, and uh, perhaps best characterized with a plummy jam flavor. Uh, the reason I chose it is because it has a nice analogy with Betul's research. It is a wine, so it's a red wine that's chilled, and uh, that's very unusual for a red wine to be chilled. And when I first heard about it, I was like, what? No way, no way, that can't be possible, red wine chilled. But it proceeded to blow my mind because it's very, very refreshing and very good and it's fantastic after a, a bike ride or a hard day at work. And uh, the reason it's analogous to Betul's uh, work is that because when she first told me about what she does, I was also going like, ah, nah, -uh, no way. And then she proceeded to blow my mind with her work. I mean, she does, she resurrects ancient genes and evolves them in modern organisms, which is incredible because, uh, well, my science involves throwing water down a stairwell so you can see the difference in, in quality. <laughs> so uh, let me uh, locate my, my coarse screw. There it is. And uh, there's very few sounds in the world that are quite as beautiful as opening a bottle of wine. Ah, oh, that's the stuff. It was that actually live, or did you pre-record that no, sound? No, this is live, my friend. It has a wonderfully ochre red color. Ah, and I can definitely smell the plum wine. Oh man, what a way to start a podcast! So it's my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Betul Kachar. She has a Bachelor of Science in Chemistry from uh, Marmara University in Istanbul and a PhD in chemistry and biochemistry from Emory University. She is uh, currently a NASA postdoctoral fellow at the Georgia Tech Center for Ribosomal Origins and Evolution, as well as a research scientist at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. 
She is tremendously active doing both outreach and humanitarian projects, both in Georgia as well as her home country of Turkey, uh, including the International Rescue Committee. And uh, more recently, she is a co-founder of the Astrobiology Social and Collaborative web, web platform called Sagan. So if you are listening uh, to this podcast from your computer, uh, consider downloading the handout that is going to be in parallel to the talk. It's, it can be found at uh, bmsis.org slash podcast. And uh, Betul's talk is entitled, Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood and Sorry I Could Not Travel Both. Evolution, Chance, Functional Constraints, and Adaptive Paths. Betul, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for the kind introduction, Sanjoy, and thanks for this opportunity. Well, I actually should say that I like it when people give the reaction that they give to a red chilled wine when I talk about my research first. <laughs> I think there's nothing better than going, oh, that's not going to work because it gives me a lot of pressure, you know, a pleasure when I actually show that it does freaking work. So um, I'm not going to talk about my research too much in detail today, but I will talk about the question that makes me study what I study in the lab. So um, currently I'm working in, in a project that actually circulates around evolutionary biology, although it does feed from astrobiology, molecular biology, and many other writing aspects of science. So I guess the only time that I am really obsessed about past is when it comes to evolution. I want to understand what makes history important. And I do think history is important because there is nothing that does not feed from the past when it comes to the future. There are so many incidents that had happened in the past, I think, that are the result of our current situation when it comes to biology, evolution, and also human history, and many other incidents. So I think the cool part about the past is the unpredictability of it. And I'm choosing my words carefully. I know that, you know, dictionaries don't associate unpredictability with the past, that it is more retroactivity when it comes to the past. But no, I think there is a predictability when it comes to past too, and I will hopefully convince you guys that that's the case in my work in evolutionary biology. So it is interesting because again, evolution is a very historical science, but when you look at the history of evolutionary biology, you really don't see much publications or much research about how does actually history is affecting evolution. And I understand that because it's quite a challenging topic, right? I mean, how do you actually resurrect the past? Like, how do you even understand it? How do you actually go back there, you know, like, how can you even understand the traces of the history? So one of the um, greatest men, I think, in evolutionary biology, who actually shed a light on this topic was Stephen Jay Gould. So he wrote this book, um, Wonderful Life, where he talks about the historical constraints and how these, you know, historical constraints actually shape present and the future. And he come, came up with this analogy of the table of life. And some of you may have heard this, that he, he actually talks about life you know, as a tape. And I, I know we are, you know, we are writing on the, maybe maybe the last generation, we actually understand what a tape is. So I, I hope maybe in the future there will be new analogies. But he basically says that if life is a tape, and if we were to go back in time and erase everything that has happened on the surface of the earth, and give life another chance to evolve, would the conditions on our planet would, would be the same or would it be completely different? So his, uh, his, his view is that it would be completely different. Humans maybe wouldn't even be here in the first place. Everything would have been you know, completely different than what it is because things in the past are random and there's no law or there are no rules that govern evolution. 
So that's, of course, you know, a very, very strong statement. And I sometimes think maybe Gould does these things to kind of, you know, agitate the community, which actually did help in his case, that there were people who, who completely thought this is all baloney and, you know, they were against this whole idea of life being completely random. And you can imagine, you know, the theology, you know, point of view that, no, you know, there are laws that are, I mean, but I'm not going to get into the God and how God diverts evolution, but that's the fact that there are a lot of paleogeneticists <laughs> and like Simon Conway Morris who are completely against this idea, but they also have a religious point of view. So I'm not going to get into that, but I just want to say that not everybody agrees with gold in the field. So um, together with Levantin, they introduced the historicity to evolutionary biology. And again, even though evolution is historical, it's not like physics, where probably is more ahistorical. They did introduce the concept at first. So I will now get into the, the two big, I think, ideas about how history affects. So the one thing is that history is contingent. There are effects that affect the future. There are things that happened in the past. They are either, they happen to happen, but they were not bound to happen. And then they, they led to a conclusion. And that was completely random. And the other point would be that, no, you know, it, it happened because it wasn't happened to happen at first place. It had to happen. It was bound to happen because there was no other option to happen. And it is more deterministic. So I've been doing a lot of thinking on these two views. And I think they are very black and white. And I don't think that we can separate things very sharply when it comes to evolution or in general in life. So I think I, at this point, want to eliminate the option of determinism because it sounds too good to be true. And I think there are layers of contingency when it comes to history. So um, let me explain it this way. I, I don't think that history has one effect. Um, it, like, look, if you look at the Persian note, like you look at the, the last common ancestor, it seems obvious that, you know, everything that has evolved on Earth had to be something that could evolve from Luca. Of course, I mean, things get more complicated like if viruses are in fact a separate tree or if there are other trees. I'm not going to get into that part. But say, think about from the Persian note that as time goes on and there are lineages that diversify and split and there are homologues and orthologs, the history that has taken place does prune the range of possible evolutionary endpoints. So the history itself eliminates the possibility of some things evolving in a lineage, while the history again reduces the probability of others evolving, it increases the probability of others evolving. So there is a balance that is, I think, diverted, um, kind of controlled, well, I should not use the word control, but manipulated, I would say, or affected by the history. So bottom line is it can both, you know, the history can both block, constrain, or promote. But then, again, the question is how can we explain the role of history in a coherent way? Again, Gold suggested that, you know, we could play a table of life, and again, each, each play would yield to a new result, because the role of chance in evolution clearly means that there are many paths available for life to take. And now that I eliminated the, the option of determinism, I will divide contingency into two parts. And I think there are two ways that life can work, that things can either be contingent upon the changes in history, or they could be contingent per se. So, because I think at the end of the day, contingency needs to be defined within a causal frame, because without causality, you cannot have contingency. Broadly speaking, I think of contingency as being a property of a causal system in which history to a varying degree would matter. So minor, maybe little details of how a historical event plays out 
may impact the range of possible and probable features that can take place in a contingent system, like in, even in the human history. And in the in the slide, I have this uh, figure where uh, there is there are two ways that I think contingency is working. One is the causal dependence, um, the figure on the left, upper left, that the state O represents the ancestral state. So imagine O as the, the starting point. So you can either end in the position A or A primer if the future is unpredictable. So at this point, initial state does not necessarily matter. It is insufficient itself to explain or to, for us to foresee or predict the end. But in the, in the other state, there's O, an ancestral state, leads to A, incident A, or O primer in, leads to incident A primer. And that is when the initial state is necessary. There's a strong influence by the initial state for, of, uh, for the end point. And it is required for a particular outcome. So that is contingent upon the initial state. And that is, I think, causally dependent. And in either case, the, the, the figure on the very left represents the initial state as a blue, um, I will say blue marble, but we can think of it as like a black marble, that um, there's no trace of the past yet, but then there are many solutions to reach, and A or A primer are one of them, but at either case, it reaches to a maxima. And that is when I will, actually, I will touch base on that when I talk about natural selection and evolutionary biology. But at this point, I guess what we need to know is either way, there are um, highly adaptive solutions in life. And maybe it doesn't even matter which point you're ending, because either way, you're reaching to your maxima. So, yeah, so at this point, I will also talk about, like, why am I showing the picture of Cleopatra? on the right, upper right. So I was reading this book by Pascal where he quotes that if Cleopatra's nose was any smaller, the whole history on the surface of the earth would be very different. So he thinks that, you know, the, the nose of <laughs> Cleopatra had an effect on the Roman Empire. And some, again, some may think it's true. I kind of think it is. So I think what is really, you know, I mean, when I read this, I thought of, okay, there is a, there's an incident, right? There is, the, there is a sensitivity to an initial condition. And in this case, our condition is that Antony has an, in, in, you know, is an infatuation with Cleo. And if her nose was smaller or bigger, maybe Antony wouldn't be attracted to Cleopatra. And maybe the Roman Republic you know, <laughs> would have kept the empire. So it, in this whole scenario, what is you know, related to chance, what is related to accident is the size of Cleopatra's nose. But then meeting with Anthony is something that was bound to happen. So there is a, there is a, there are layers of the whole situation. That, Can and, I interject here? Yes, 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 yes. So I think what you're describing is that history is, ba is boundedly chaotic. You can change things quite a bit with very small initial perturbations, but you can't, you know, violate any laws of physics. There's a recent example I heard of this, where somebody showed that if a different actress had been cast for Seven of Nine on Star Trek Voyager, Barack Obama would not be president of the United States at the current time. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. This I is Michael Bush. I'm an astronomer. So. <laughs> well, I don't think in terms of astronomy and physics, that's why I really like this opportunity, because I want you guys to challenge me on that. I'm more thinking about the terms in biology, and this is a good perspective for me. But um, I, I did mention this, I did give this example because it is what um, us, I would say, biologists in the field of evolutionary biology are debating about. That again, you know, these small changes are under 
the course of natural selection and how they are changing the trajectory, the future trajectory. But, um, okay, where was I? Yeah, so we talked about that how small differences in the past may have large consequences. Okay, so, um, all right, so something in the past that didn't have to happen, but it did happen, and it happened to happen in a certain way that changed our understanding of everything, like in the case of Cleopatra's nose. And um, it is, I think what matters here is to understand that what point in the history does make the difference, you know, like if there is there a moment of this illuminata where, you know, the whole course changes. So I think when I said in the beginning that, okay, history matters, I think what matters is that point in the past that actually led to the conclude that led to the trajectory A or A primer. So for us, I think the challenge is to understand or find that, that very exact point that actually caused the difference. But then you may also think about in a way that, okay, if past leaves, you know, open future alternatives um, after that incident or after that very point, then in what sense does that point matter? So that's why I think the unpredictability of history is challenging because, again, we don't know those points. Although uh, I will talk about some experiments later um, that actually does help us to understand those points in the past. Darwin also actually kind of digged this topic of unpredictability of life, although he didn't use the word contingency in, in the text that I'm familiar with. But so in the in the last part of his life, I think he was kind of sick those days. He studied orchids very, you know, very extensively. So he he grew, he did breed orchids and he wanted to understand how the insects actually fertilize the orchids. So during his studies, he actually realized that there is a species of orchid that he did breed himself that kind of adopted a different type of labellium. So the labellium is the part where insects actually are attracted to and come and do the breeding. So that's the part that, you know, the flying insects come and they are helping for the cross-pollination. And um, so what, what Darwin saw is that there are so many different ways for uh, orchids to avoid inbreeding. So there are many adoptive solutions that the orchids took and it was based on their labellium. Primarily he focused on these three, and I have this picture in the slides, that he focused on these three different shapes. One is that in, in most of the orchids, the labellium is um, pointed upwards, about like plus 180 degrees, I mean. And in other orchids, it was more minus 180. But there were some orchids that the whole labellium was completely twisted, like 360 degree twist on So Darwin couldn't understand the reason why this is happening. But then as he studied these things, he realized that, well, all these structures, even though they are phenotypically different, do serve for the same, same you know, reason, that it's all helping for insects and all helping for cross-pollination. So that's when he called these the chance variation, that natural selection acts upon random mutation, and it doesn't matter, your, you know, the, your final um, end point doesn't really matter as long as you do the job right. And then he thought, okay, well, there are there's a function that happens to be selected, but it's, even though it wasn't primarily selected to do that function. So I think Darwin himself also had, you know, his idea back and forth. He wasn't sure if selection matters or variation matters. And I think in the beginning, he was more into that variation is what matters side. But then I think through this orchid study, he moved on to more, no, it's, but what matters is selection. And that is really the basis of 
I think Gold's idea of um, that he developed based on the the scandals of San Marco, and that is on the figure left, bottom left. So um, Gould and Levantin uh, kind of adopted this idea of you know that you can have a function that is a site that wasn't again primarily selected for, but then it happened to happen. And um, I'm not going to talk about you know like whether the order of mutations are affecting this or what is the role of epistasis. But what um, Gould and Levantin said is that no, they denied that selection alone is not sufficient to, you know, it doesn't guarantee that there will be same outcomes that are going to be reachable over and over again. Even they excluded like stochasticity and, you know, um, random mutations. So bottom line is that we cannot guarantee that natural selection will produce an optimal solution because it is more complex than that. So these spandrels, if you're not familiar with, with the whole idea, is that they are so they are triangular spacey, spaces that are um, formed between the two arc, arcs of uh, cathedrals. So there are so many artworks that now are on these spandrels, and the point of these spandrels are not to host you know beautiful artwork, although you know it is very nice, but that's not their function. Their function is to give you know some support for the architect hold whole for the whole architecture of the cathedrals. So um, bottom line is like many futures of organisms may have evolved as a side effect of other changes. Also, even if this future now has a function, the origin uh, dependent on, on this function are just the you know, quirks of history. And that's what Gould uh, named as acceptation. So there's shifts in the function. And I think because of these acceptations, like the, all the roles of these you know, shifts in functions based on random variation. I do also think that the the reason that life is contingent per se is not necessarily cause dependent is because of the, the role of um of selection. So I don't think variation matters, it is the selection. Yes, she said that. <laughs> but then and you know, but then there are also limitations between the variation and selection because you can have two versions of again contingency and you can reach the same conclusion over and over again because of the natural selection. So then again you can have another layer that you can add within the contingency per se. So there is this is more the philosophy of the side and maybe you can you guys can you know imagine maybe this is why biologists really stayed away from understanding the role of history in evolution. It is quite a bit of a complex I think picture. And it's my dream to you know really one day come to a level where I can write about my ideas of contingency, because I think, again, the field really lacks an extensive study of the, the role of history and evolution, again, despite the fact that evolution is strongly historical. But then, good thing is there are studies now that we carry on, mostly the, under the umbrella of experimental evolution, that leads us to uh, kind of answer these questions. So, well, I will give it, so when I mean experimental evolution, it is really like the name speaks for itself. So you are, there are either there are two really, I think, major ways where you can study evolution. One is, you know, you can go to nature and collect um, organisms and forms and bring them to lab, or you can just analyze them on the field and understand how they have adapted things under certain conditions. Or you can create your own niche in the lab, your own ecology, and which is what I am doing in the lab, too. And I think the, the first example of experimental evolution is actually during the times of Darwin. Uh, I think he's a minister. William Dellinger, if I'm not wrong, he's actually the first person who did an experimental evolution study. So I think like he, he, he was interested in botanics. He was growing flowers in his garden of the, of the church. 
and he wanted to study um, unicellular organisms. And he created this, like, uh, very, you know, of course, ancient version of the 1900s uh, microscope. And then he grew the protozoa in an incubator, and he gradually increased the temperature in a co course of seven years. So for seven years, he gradually increased from 60 Fahrenheit to about 160. And what he found is that the organisms that tolerated the temperature at 160 Fahrenheit at the end of the seventh year can no longer grow on the initial temperature. So, you know, he was fascinated by this fact that, you know, you're gaining, you know, a beneficial, a, a benefit, right? You can now tolerate high temperature, but you lost your original adaptation. So this is the first example of really evolutionary trade-offs that evolution adaptation is, you know, accompanied by a loss of reproductive potential in a non-selective environment. So he wrote these findings to Darwin and that said that this, is, this may be an evidence of your finding, which I, you know, again, find it very interesting considering the fact that how, you know, religion and evolution is not very separated, even though one of the biggest evidences of evolution in action has been provided by a minister. So after that, in, uh, I think this was in 1920s, really we don't really have much till the 1940s of uh, Luria, I think Dalbrook, uh, kind of, they, they did work with bacteria and um, they wanted to show how viruses, phages invade bacteria and change their responses into infection and whether there's selection without any pressure. And they did demonstrate that, yes, there is a selection, even though there is no selection pressure. And that was in the 40s. So really like studying bacterial organisms have been ignored till the 80s when Richard Lansky, also currently at Michigan State University, has started what is long known as like the longest experiment in the history of experiments <laughs> that he's been doing this experiment I think about for 27 years now that he studied he started with 12 identical bacterial cultures and he's been um, evolving these under minimal um, glucose environment every day through a serial transfer so basically the the whole experiment is you're growing bacteria in minimal glucose so glucose is the sugar is the food and next day after a 24 our growth cycle, you're randomly sampling uh, one hundredth of the whole population and, and transferring that to a new minimal culture, new fresh culture. So bacteria usually can grow for about 16 hours. So pushing the limits to 24 hours really leads to the survival of the fittest. So you're really moving on with those ones that happen to survive at the end of the 24th hour. So now imagine doing that for 27 years that bacteria is now, you know, so presumably adopted a way to survive under this very minimal artificial selection environment, which is, again, glucose. I think Rich Lansky currently is about 27,000 generations of bacterial lineage. That is more than human history, actually, like in human life terms. So what is interesting, though, is that, after, that again, he started with 12 parallel lineages. And... At the end, around, I think, 15th year, one day he comes to lab and then he finds that one out of these 12 flasks actually is very turbid. Is, so usually this minimal media, it looks almost like water. It is very clear. 
But then he looks at this one flask that is actually extremely dense and he doesn't understand what's going on. So they think it's a contamination. They go back a few generations, they rewind. And that's the beauty, again, of working with bacteria is that you can freeze it, you can reanimate it, throw it, do what you want. You cannot, you know, store a human being in minus 80 for 20 years. But with bacteria, you can. And that's why I think they're so awesome to study in the lab. Anyway, so... They think it's the contamination. They go back, they repeat, they go back, they repeat. And each time, the same exact day, that turbidity just comes into place. So Monday, you're not, you're clear. Tuesday, you're turbid. So what the hell is going on, they ask. And they find that this one flask took a road, took a path that was not traveled by the other 11. So this one bacteria adopted to grow on a side well, it's not a side product, but it is actually a an, an different chemical in the media other than glucose, which is citrate. So this bacteria found a way to adapt to this other chemical that will, you know, that it can suspend its growth, which is marvelous because we don't know any E. coli species that can grow on citrate. So you may even argue that there's a whole new species that's found in the lab. So that was pretty cool. And it's the first example of, you know, how, how contingency is working. Like imagine that you have 11 other examples and only one of them is choosing a different pathway. This gives me goosebumps. It's just freaking awesome. I think that, you know, that one of them did something very different that the others don't do. And it gets more and more interesting because when they go back to that 15th year, they just back it up for, you know, like say 10,000 generations. And each time at the same day, the same thing happens. It's very punctuated equilibrium in action. However, if you were to go back to the very beginning, you don't. You may not ever see citrate evolving back. So again, that brings us to the point of that you know of finding that very point in the past that actually causes the difference of the future. And for for Richard Lansky, that was the case where that single mutation for adaptation to citrate has happened. And uh, I think right now they are in the process of publishing the genetic basis of this change of this whole, you know, new whole new bacteria that now can grow on citrate instead of glucose. Again, citrate is not a product for bacteria to uptake. So um, that is one example, I think, beautiful example of historical contingency. I'm probably one of the very few, actually, that, uh, again, it's not because we cannot see it, it's because it's a very avoided topic to study. It's very pretty deep and, again, it's, you know, very philosophical on the side and and that's why I think um, Astrobiol NASA Astrobiology Institute gives me a chance to carry on these studies because it is, you know, it combines philosophy with science. And I think astrobiology is the path to melt these things. But I need to acknowledge another study very briefly that actually doesn't suggest the contingency, right? So not every study. Again, I, in, the, in the beginning, I said um, there are a lot of paleogeneticists that do not agree that life is contingent. And one study came from this group, uh, Lossos, L-O-S-O-S. And so Lossos and his colleagues, uh, they were studying the lizards in the, in the islands of Cuba, um, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, I think, and, and some, uh, some islands of Caribbean, four islands. So what they found is that there is the species of lizards with some, so they, they see a variation on these lizards in their toes. Okay, so the toes are different. And I think, as far as I remember, it is due to the, the lands that these lizards are living on. So, so they find that there are, again, four different morphologies of these lizards. And I think they're called um, ecomorphic. It's, it really means that ecomorph is the, the species that adapts to a particular niche. So 
again, they see that there are four types of different ecomorphs living in four different islands. So those four types are convergent. They're, they've been living on each of the islands. Usually that's not what we see. Usually if you have a different, you know, ecology in one island, there's one species there, like what Darwin observed in Galapagos. And then in the island X has, you know, one, one ecomorph, island Y has one ecomorph. But how come you have four of the same <laughs> lizard in all of the four different islands? So the group concluded this study as convergent evolution that uh, they did some sequencing in the mitochondrial DNA and found that, yes, there's the same mutation happening and it happened to happen in four different islands over and over again, and it led to this convergence. And um, I think this, together with the convergence of eyes that comes up over and over again, there are studies, again, in the, in the world of ecology that suggest that in nature, things are more convergent. So I don't know what that tells us about the nature of experiments, because, you know, these are artificial conditions that what we do in the lab, and they seem to be contingent. So that's, of course, you know, open to debate. So... Well, finally, I will um, talk about what I do very briefly. I, I am a biochemist by training, so my, I'm a protein biochemist. So I am now taking this historical contingency concept to proteins. And as Sanjoy mentioned in the beginning, um, my interest is to go back in time and uh, resurrect the ancient sequences of the proteins. And then first to see you know, how they happen to happen as they are now. And second is to understand whether we can predict the future of these um, evolving sequences. So the way I, I carry out my research is I go back so far, I have gone back to 500 million years and then 1.3 billion years and resurrect um, these proteins that happened, uh, that they are, they, they are present in the past. And then I replace them with their modern counterparts in, the bac in bacteria and then subject them to evolution to see the pathways that these proteins in the context of the whole cell, of course, will take. My goal is to, again, predict the past and whether we can predict what is going to happen because we are creating our own past in the lab. So, I, so far, I have a year and two months of history that I created using these ancient bacteria, ancient protein sequences. That is what I do. And I'm going to pause here a little bit. And I want to hear you know, what you guys think. And um, well, thank you. Thank you, Betul. This was uh, thought-provoking. <laughs> I guess I have a question to start things off. So if causality is absolute and you rewinded Earth's time back four and a half billion years ago and then start the Earth system all over again with all the evolution and all the unpredict unpredictability associated with it, would the final B result be identical to the one we have now? I think only if you keep all the other variants the same as well. Like, will the environment change the same? Yeah, yeah. everything. And that includes every single photon and cosmic ray hit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think I have to say yes, then it would. But then what are the chances of that happening? No, yeah, so because I was, I was wondering if it's a unique solution, like you can different evolutionary path, having, having the same past, give different outcomes? I mean, in the case of a microevolution, right, in the case of Richard Lansky, that's not the case. Because, you know, he has the same identical conditions and everything is in parallel and they are all identical, yet one of them is doing something completely different. So he couldn't repeat it in each time. So if, if what he did applies to the whole history of the Earth, which I think is a very big stretch, <laughs> For sure. 
<laughs> then I would say no. But I don't think it does apply. But it's quite obvious that history is chaotic, right? I can move a pebble from one side of an asteroid to another and it'll hit a different spot of the Earth 100 years later. Yeah. Yeah, so you're saying that fantasize about everything happening the same way is irrational because it is so chaotic. So if it is so chaotic, then the, the evolution that has happened to evolve us human intelligent species might be special, might be a lucky card from the draw, or... Not necessarily. We only have one sample of the probability distribution function. We can make no statements, or very few statements, about what the distribution function looks like based on one sample. Okay, so that's kind of where I was getting at. Like, if you rewind and then try again. Mm -hmm. but I guess it's... Yeah, I guess it's more of a philosophical question than it is a scientific one. <laughs> well, well, if, I, if I can ask a somewhat related probability question. I mean, yeah, but the whole, <laughs> whole variation and adaptation is to a level probability question. Right, no, exactly. If I can ask a quick question. When you're reverse engineering the proteins, what the sequence was when 500 million years ago or whatever, what are the odds that you get every single protein, every single amino acid in that protein correct, and that you didn't miss, make, 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 you, you, don't, you haven't had so much migration that you can't uniquely specify what the starting protein was? Well, yeah, we can never know in the truth, right? You can never go back and actually check these things. But the system that we are using is pretty confident. And um, so it is not just probabilistic in the sense of computational analysis. We can actually resurrect these things in the lab. We can, like, touch them and see And, if, and your argument is that if you, one, the odds are, uh, uh, you've done enough of the sequencing and reconstruction, the odds are very high that you've got the original source sequence. And when you take that sequence and make a protein out of it, you get something that's active in a relevant fashion. So it is not, so in, in my case, for, for instance, the, ends, the protein I'm working on is not as active as it should, which is what we um, predicted. So, because it doesn't belong to now. And but, it's still, but, but it still catalyzes the same set of reactions in some effects, just not as well as the not as healthily. current state. Okay. Yeah, not, I mean, yeah, not as healthily. Yeah, so there's, of course, you know, you're right that there's always a level of unknowns when you deal with the past, right? Because we don't really have a time machine. But you can make presumptions and you can infer the sequences based on probability. And we can identify the sites that, you know, mutate really fast, some sites don't, and then construct the, the ancestor. And these are all based on phylogeny analysis. So we're pretty confident that it is telling us the truth. But in my case, I think what is really unique about what I did was this is the first example of actually showing that an ancient protein can function. No one has ever shown that. That's pretty, pretty cool, cool stuff. Yeah. Anybody yeah. else? Well, I guess, uh, you know, Betul, one thing this made me think of with, you know, the, the Cleopatra's nose analogy, um, you know, Michael pointed out maybe history is chaotic, but, you know, Jared Diamond might say to some extent history is deterministic, and if re you rewound, you know, 10,000 years ago and maybe had some small perturbations, you would still have, you know, a plethora of cereal grains and domesticable animals in Mesopotamia as compared to China or South America. So maybe to some degree history, and by extension maybe uh, the history of evolution, maybe there are at least cases where 
um, a, a certain development is actually quite robust to perturbations, and maybe one or two extra photons or fewer photons for a particular uh, microbial mutation maybe doesn't matter uh, in a particular environment, whereas in other cases it may. Um, so I think you just got me thinking about, well, it's very interesting, everything, but um, you got me sort of thinking about maybe there are some aspects of history and or evolution that are in fact closer to deterministic while there are other facets that are maybe um, less less repeatable. Yeah, and I, I think the, again, the challenge is to explain these things in a coherent way. And um, yeah, but the, I, I don't think, again, I, I do think that there are cases, as you say, that are contingent, there are cases that are contingent upon and some are deterministic, but we just need to, I think, understand those options, those scenarios, why some cases are more deterministic and why aren't, what determines those. So Jacob, what, you, what you're saying is that on a small scale you can have small perturbations that won't affect the overall direction yeah. of... of uh, on perhaps any scale, I mean, I, I don't know what... So the Jared Diamond argument, if, if, for those of you not familiar with it, is why did uh, the the uh, West, the, the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent civilization come to dominate the world, whereas uh, you know the New Guinean Highland culture did not, and, and actually they live a fairly like agrarian farming to subsistence life still, without helicopters and technology. And Jared Diamond's answer to that is it has a lot to do with geography. That just, just so happened there were more grains that you could farm in the Fertile Crescent than in New Guinea, there were more animals you could harness for work in, in Mesopotamia than in New Guinea. And so that's actually quite a very large scale, um, but, and it's very broad and historical. And I don't think he would say that the exact patterns of history would repeat, but maybe the general trends would. So maybe individual leaders might emerge differently, but in all likelihood, the Fertile Crescent region would still have uh, the wealth of, of resources that they'll probably come to colonize the New World instead of vice versa, where you'd rewind the clock. So I don't know what scale. It, it's hard to say. That was just the first example that came to my mind. So that's yeah, interesting. Okay. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Vitri. No, no, go ahead, Sanjoy. Oh, I was just saying, so it would be like fluctuations about the mean, but the mean doesn't change. <laughs> yes, spoken like a true scientist. <laughs> it is probably in the case of like evolutionary biology too, right? When they talk about these adaptive landscapes and the whole aim of an organism evolving, or not aim, but you know, the future is to reach to the peak. And so, but there may be many different ways to reach to that peak. So I guess what you're saying is that it doesn't matter what path you take, you're gonna get to the peak anyway. Maybe, maybe in some cases, maybe there are some times when the path diverges, but you're just going up opposite sides of the mountain. But then other cases, the path diverges and you go towards completely different mountains. Yeah, and I guess in the case of evolution, those changes are caused by environmental fluctuations because that's what makes the evolution, the adaptive landscape dynamic. But I do, make, I don't know, I, I guess it, it is a, you know, it's an important thing to think about the, um, like whether history does not make a difference to, you know, in biological or maybe physiological cases. <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> See, welcome to my world. <laughs> it is quite confusing to me to think about this thing. Mind blown once again. What a way to end I the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, join us next month for the next installment of Beer with Global Space Institute of Science. Betul, thank you so much. 
That's very fun. Thanks, Batool. Thank you. That was really awesome. Thank you, Batool. That was very informative. Well, thank you, guys. See everyone. Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives. Thank you.